Hello, this is Christopher from Defeat Modernism. And given that this week we'll be celebrating the Feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus, I wanted to do this video on St. John Udes and his work on the Sacred Heart. Uh, St. John was a French Roman Catholic priest. He was the founder of the Order of Our Lady of Charity in 1641 uh, and the Congregation of Jesus and Mary, also known as the Udists, in 1643. He is the author of the Proper for the Mass and Divine Office of the Sacred Hearts of Jesus Christ and the Blessed Virgin. He was an ardent proponent of the Sacred Hearts and dedicated himself to his promotion and celebration. And with that short introduction, let's get to his work. Also, before I forget, I do have a link to the PDF file of the entire book in the description box. I'm going to be skipping the introduction and going straight to where he begins writing. Uh, that would be on page 20 of the PDF file. And also, please remember to hit the like and subscribe buttons and pass this on. Thank you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. The Sacred Heart of Jesus, Chapter 1. The Sacred Heart of Jesus is a furnace of burning love for his eternal Father. Innumerable reasons urge us to offer our worship and honor to the Sacred Heart of our most adorable Savior with extraordinary devotion and reverence. All these reasons are embodied in the words of St. Bernardine of Siena, who calls this loving heart a furnace of ardent love to enkindle and inflame the whole universe. Most certainly, the admirable heart of Jesus is a furnace of love for his Divine Father, for his Blessed Mother, and for his church triumphant, militant, and suffering, and also for each one of us. This we shall see in the following chapters. Let us consider, first of all, the most brilliant flames of this great furnace of love for the Eternal Father. What mind can conceive and what tongue express the tiniest spark of this illimitable flaming furnace of love for his Father? It is a love worthy of such a Father and of such a Son, it is a love that most perfectly equals the ineffable perfections of its beloved object. Here is a son infinitely loving and a father who is infinitely lovable, a God loving a God. Here is love in its very essence, loving eternal love, a love that is boundless, incomprehensible, infinite, passing all limits and loving in turn a love that is boundless, incomprehensible, infinite, and passing all limits. Sermon 514, De Passioni Domini, page 2. In the picture called Our Lady of Hearts, St. John Eudes represents the sacred hearts of Jesus and Mary by the emblem of a furnace of love, whether his disciples go to light, torches to enkindle the universe. It is really but a beautiful application of the word of our Lord in St. Luke chapter 12, verse 49. I am come to cast fire on the earth, and what will I but it be kindled? In a word, the sacred heart of Jesus, whether considered in his divinity or in his humanity, is more ardently enkindled with love for his Father, loving him infinitely more at any given moment than all the hearts of angels and saints together can love him throughout all eternity. There is no greater love than to give one's life for the person one loves. 
The Son of God so loves his Father that he would be ready to sacrifice his own life again as he sacrificed it upon the cross, and to sacrifice it by suffering the same torments for the love of his Father, if such were God's holy will, that he suffered on Calvary. Since his love is boundless, he would be ready to lay down his life throughout the whole universe as he did upon Calvary. Since his love is eternal and infinite, he would be ready to make this sacrifice over and over again, if it were possible, and with infinite suffering. O Divine Father, Creator, Preserver, and Ruler of the whole world, there is no one so lovable as Thou. Thy manifold and infinite perfections and and the unspeakable blessings Thou hast in store for all Thy creatures, place upon them endless obligations to serve, honor, and love Thee with all their strength. Yet there is no one in the whole world who is so little loved as Thou, no one who is so scorned and insulted by most of Thy creatures. Odorant me et patrem meum. They have hated both me and my Father. Jesus thy Son has said, Without cause they have hated me. I have never done them any harm, but have lavished on them all manner of good. Odio habuerunt me gratis. I behold. Hell, filled with untold number of the damned, ceaselessly venting their multitudinous blasphemies against thy divine majesty. I behold the earth filled with unbelievers, Jews, heretics, and false Christians, who treat thee as if thou wert an arch enemy. But two thoughts are my consolation and joy. The first is that thy perfections and thy splendors, O my God, are so admirable. Thou dost take so great a pleasure and so perfect a satisfaction in the infinite love of thy divine Son, and in all that he hath suffered. With that infinite love to repair the injuries that thy enemies have striven and still strive to do thee, that they have not been able or ever will be able to detract the least iota from thy glory and thy felicity. The second joyful thought is that Jesus, thy well-beloved Son, by his incomparable overflowing goodness, willed to be our head and chose us to be his members. He has associated us with himself in his ineffable love for thee. He has given us as a result the power to love thee with the same love wherewith he loves thee, with a love eternal, boundless, and infinite. To understand this truth well, take note of three important facts. First, the love of the Son of God for his heavenly Father, being eternal, does not pass away, but remains forever, stable and abiding. Secondly, the love of the Son of God for his Father fills all things by its immensity. Consequently, it abides in us and in our hearts. Intimo meo, intimior, as St. Augustine says. Thirdly, as the Father of Jesus has given us all things in giving us his Son, cum ipso omnia donavit, the love of the Son of God for the Father belongs to us, and we can and must make use of it as a possession that is ours. On this basis, I can, with my Savior, love his divine Father and mine, with the same love wherewith he loves him, with a love which I can put into practice thus. O my Savior, I give myself to thee to unite myself to thy eternal, boundless, and infinite love for thy Almighty Father. 
O adorable Father, I offer thee all the eternal, boundless, and infinite love of thy Son, Jesus, as a love which is mine. Just as our lovable Savior says to us, Sicut dilexit me peller, et ego dilexi vos. As the Father hath loved me, I also love you. I, I may say to thee, O Divine Father, I love thee, even as thy Son loveth thee. The Father's love for the Son is no less mine than the Son's love for the Father. Therefore, I can make use of it thus. O Father of Jesus, I give myself to thee to be united to thy boundless and eternal love for thy beloved Son. O my Jesus, I offer thee all the eternal boundless and infinite love of thy Father, and I offer it to thee as a love which is mine. In this way, as our loving Redeemer says to us, I love you as my Father loveth me. I can say in turn to him, I love thee, my Savior, as thy eternal Father loveth thee. O ineffable goodness, O wondrous love, what bliss for us that the eternal Father gives us his only begotten Son, and with him all things else. He gives him to us not only to be our Redeemer, our brother, and our Father, but also to be our head. What a privilege to be members of the Son of God, to be one with him, as the members are one with the head, hence to have but one spirit, one heart, one love with Christ, and thus to be able to love his divine Father and our Father with one and the same heart. It is, therefore, not surprising that, speaking of us to his heavenly Father, our Lord says, Delexisti eos sicut et me delexisti. Thou hast loved them as thou hast also loved me. And he implores him to love us always. Delexio qua delexisti me in ipsis sit. If we love the Father as his Son loves him, he loves us as he loves his divine Son. He beholds us in his Son as members of Christ, who are but one with the Son and love the Father with the same filial love. Truly, he loves us with one and the same heart and love wherewith he loves his Son. Would that heaven and earth and all creatures might be changed into a pure flame of love for the Father of goodness and for the only Son of his divine delight, as St. Paul calls him, Transtulit nos in regnum filii delectionis sue. And that was from Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, which says, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. Chapter 2. The Sacred Heart of Jesus is a furnace of ardent love for his Most Holy Mother. Nothing is easier than the proof of this truth. The ineffable graces with which our Savior endowed his Blessed Mother clearly manifest that his love for her is a love without measure or limit. She is, after his Divine Father, the first and most worthy object of his love. He loves her incomparably more than all his angels, saints, and other creatures together. The extraordinary favors with which he honored her and the wonderful privileges he conferred upon her, far beyond any other creature, are clear proofs of this truth. Let us examine these numerous and impressive privileges. First of all, the Blessed Virgin is the only human being whom the Son of God chose from all eternity to elevate above all created things, to set on the highest throne of glory and grandeur, and to adorn with the most admirable of all dignities, the motherhood of God. Let us descend in spirit from eternity to the fullness of time. 
And we shall see this hallowed virgin alone among the children of Adam in her preservation from original sin through a very special privilege in testimony of which Holy Church celebrates annually throughout the world the feast of her Immaculate Conception. Not only did the love of God's Son for his most holy mother preserve her from original sin, but over and above that, he filled her from the moment of her conception with such eminent grace that, according to several great theologians, it surpassed the grace of the chief of the seraphim and of the greatest of all the saints ever taken in its perfection. She alone among all the children of Adam enjoyed this privilege. Moreover, from the first moment of her existence, she possessed the privilege of the light of reason and faith by which she began to know God, to adore him, and to give herself to him. In virtue of another privilege, she alone began to love God from the initial moment of her life, and she loved him more ardently than the most flaming of the seraphim. She alone loved him continuously, incessantly, throughout the whole course of her life. For this reason, we say that her life was one single act of love from the first to the last moment, an act that was never interrupted. She is the only creature who has always perfectly accomplished the first of the divine commandments. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with thy whole soul and with all thy strength. Hence, several doctors of the church assert that her love was doubled with each hour or even according to some with each moment. When a soul makes an act of love with his whole heart and according to the whole extent of the grace within him, his love becomes twice as great as it was before. The Blessed Virgin loved God continuously with all her heart and all her strength. If she had 10 degrees of love at the first instant of her life, she had 20 at the second. If she had 20 at the second, she had 40 at the third. Thus her love was doubled every moment or at least every hour throughout the course of her life. You can imagine, therefore, what a furnace and what fires of divine love inflamed that virginal heart in the last days of her abode upon earth. Let us pass on to the consideration of the matchless privileges by which the only son of Mary enriched his holy mother. According to several eminent doctors, he gave to her alone the grace to merit by her prayers and tears, the accomplishment of his incarnation. She alone gave human flesh from her own substance to him who was born from all eternity in the bosom, God of the substance of the Father. Yes, Mary gave a portion of her virginal substance and of her most pure blood to fashion the sacred humanity of the Son of God. In addition, she cooperated with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost in the union which was formed of her substance with the person of the Son of God. Thus she participated in the accomplishment of the mystery of the Incarnation, and consequently in the greatest miracle that God ever has or ever will or ever can perform. There is another privilege that contributes to the matchless honor of Our Lady. The most pure blood and the virginal flesh which she offered for this mystery will remain united forever by the hypostatic union to the person of the incarnate word. The virginal blood and the precious flesh of Mary are, therefore, to be adored in the humanity of the Son of God with the same adoration that is due to that very humanity itself. 
and they will be forever the object of the adoration of all the angels and saints. O incomparable privilege, O ineffable love of Jesus for his most holy mother. There are still other prerogatives. That loving mother also gave the flesh and blood from which the adorable heart of the child Jesus was formed. The sacred heart of the Son of God received its nourishment and its increase from that same blood during the nine months of its abode in the holy womb of the Blessed Virgin. The incomparable Virgin is alone in occupying the place of father and mother in respect to the God-man, and hence in having paternal and maternal authority over him, and in receiving the honor of being obeyed by the Sovereign of the universe, an honor that is greater than she would receive from the homage of all created beings. She alone is mother and virgin together, and according to some holy doctors, she made the vow of virginity from the moment of her immaculate conception. She alone bore in her womb for nine months him whom the Eternal Father embraces in his bosom for all eternity. She alone gave life to him who is eternal life and who gives life to all living things. Accompanied by St. Joseph, she abode him with that adorable Savior for the space of thirty years. A wondrous thing. Our divine Redeemer came upon earth to save mankind, yet he set aside only three years and three months of his life for the work of preaching and instructing. The other thirty years he devoted to the ever-increasing sanctification of his loving Holy Mother. What a wealth of graces and blessings he incessantly poured into the soul of his Blessed Mother. With what flames of his heavenly fire did the divine heart of Jesus enkindle forever more and more the virgin heart of his most worthy Mother, especially when those two hearts were so close to each other and so firmly united while she bore him in her womb, nursed him, and held him in her arms, during the whole time that she lived with him familiarly as a mother with her child, eating and drinking with him, praying with him, and hearing the divine words coming from his adorable lips as so many coals of fire, ever enkindling more and more her most holy heart with the sacred fire of divine love. After this, who can estimate how ardently the blessed heart of the mother of the Savior was afire with the love for God? Certainly, there is great reason to believe that, if her son had not miraculously preserved her until the decreed hour of death, she would have died of love, not only once, like St. Teresa, but a thousand times, since her love was immeasurably more than that of the great Carmelite mystic. From earliest childhood, her love was sufficiently intense to have caused her death and, when her beloved son did call her, she died of love that he might give her, after his own, the happiest and most glorious life possible. Let us repeat concerning the marvelous virgin, that she is the only one, after her divine son, to have been transported body and soul into heaven. In accordance with the tradition of Holy Church, Mary's assumption is solemnly celebrated throughout the world. She alone is raised on high above all the choirs of angels and saints, and sits at the right hand of her son. She alone is crowned Queen of Heaven and Earth, of angels and men, the Sovereign Empress of the Universe. She alone has all power over the Church triumphant, militant, and suffering. In Jerusalem, potestas mea. She alone has more influence with her Divine Son, Jesus, than all the citizens of Heaven together. 
data est tibi omnis potestas in cello et in terra, says St. Peter Damien. There is yet another particular privilege, emphasized in these words of St. Alison. O my queen, if thou prayest not for anyone or for anything, no one shall proffer help. But when thou prayest, all the saints pray with thee, all the saints put forth their aid. Is it not true, then, that here is a great number of privileges and advantages with which our Savior has honored his Most Holy Mother? What has constrained him to do so? The burning love with which his filial heart is all on fire for her. Why does he love her so much? Number one, she is his mother, from whom he received a new being and a new life by the new birth which she gave him on earth. Number two, he loves her alone more than he loves all creatures together because she loves him more than all created things. Number three, he loves her most ardently because she cooperated with him in the accomplishment of his great work of the redemption of the world. Her cooperation was to give him a mortal body capable of suffering and of sustaining the torments of his passion. She also imparted to him the precious blood which he shed for us, and she offered that body, that blood, and that life as a sacrifice at the foot of the cross. As our Savior's love for his blessed mother is so great, we must be obliged to love and serve her to the best of our ability. Let us then love her with her son Jesus, and if we love them, let us hate what they hate and love what they love. Let us have but one heart with them, a heart detesting what they detest, that is, sin, especially the sins against charity, humility, and purity, and a heart that loves what they love, particularly the poor, all Christian virtues, and trials. O Mother of Goodness, obtain for us these graces from thy Son. Chapter 3. The Sacred Heart of Jesus has endowed his blessed mother with wondrous authority and power in heaven. Let us add to the foregoing privileges still another prerogative, the greatest of all. It is this. The mother of God is eternally associated in heaven, not only with the highest authority of the eternal father, his adorable paternity, but likewise she possesses the authority of the mother of the divine son, as on earth. Et erat subditus ilis. Number one, this is a greater glory for her than if she exercised power over a million worlds. Her son infinitely surpasses her in glory, power, and majesty, yet he will eternally look upon her and honor her as his real mother. His place as son of God, says St. Ambrose, did not dispense him while on earth from the divine and natural obligation which, we, which he had like all other children of obeying his mother, according to the words, et erat subditus ilis. This submission was to him not a matter of shame, but rather of honor and glory. It was voluntarily and proceeded not from his weakness, but from filial devotion. Nod utique infrimatis. As this Holy Father declares, est ista subjectio sed pietatis. Several eminent theologians are agreed that the mother of the Savior had actual authority over the person of her son, whether it was by a right of nature or by virtue of his goodness and humility. 
The greatest of all names that one can bestow upon the Blessed Virgin, says the devout Gerson, is that of Mother of God, all the more because that character gives her authority and natural dominion over the Lord of the whole world. Quoniam per hoc habet, feluti, actoritatem et naturale dominum ad totuis mundi dominum. One must not imagine that her son, having given her this power on earth, would take it away from her now that she is reigning in heaven. His respect and love for her now are just as great as when he was on earth. It is only right, therefore, to believe that she is as powerful in heaven as she was on earth, and that she still maintains there a measure of authority over her divine son. Adam potestas est matris et filii, says Arnold of Chartreuse, or as Richard of St. Lawrence puts it, que ab omnipotente filio omnipotens facta est. The son and the mother, having but one and the same flesh, but one and the same heart and will, have also in a certain way, but one and the same power. Let us listen to the words of a worthy and learned prelate, George, Archbishop of Nicomedia, addressing the glorious virgin. He says, quote, Nothing resists thy might, everything obeys thy imperium. He who is born of thee hath raised thee above all things. Thy creator makes thy glory his, and deems himself honored by those who honor thee. Thy son rejoices, beholding the honor that we give thee, and as if he were paying off the obligations he hath to thee, he gladly grants thee whatsoever thou dost ask him. Nihil o vergo tue resistit potentiae tuam gloriam filius putat esse propriam et quasi exalvens debitum implet petitiones tuas. End quote. We know for certain, says St. Anselm, that the Blessed Virgin is so filled with grace and merit that she always obtains the fruition of her desires. Scimus beatum virginem, tanti esse meriti et gratiae apud deum, ut nihil eorum quae velet efficere posit aliquitantinus effectu carere. It is impossible, says St. Germanus, Archbishop of Constantinople, that her prayers should not be heard everywhere and in all things, because her divine Son is always submissive to her bequests. That God should obey a woman is humility, unexampled, and that a woman should command God is an authority which has no like. Hence, it is that St. Peter Damien is not afraid to say that our Blessed Lady appears in heaven before the sacred altar of our reconciliation, non sumum rogon sed imperans, not only as a servant, but as a mother who commands. Roga petram ube nato iure matris impera, sings the Church of Paris in one of its sequences, quote, When thou hast ought to ask of the Eternal Father, O Holy Virgin, Resort to prayer and supplication. But when it is a question of the Son, then thy maternal authority gives thee the right to utter a command. End quote. If anyone should claim that here the creature is being put above the Creator, I would ask him whether sacred scripture raises Joshua above God when it says that the sun stood still 
and God obeyed the voice of a man. No, this is not putting the creature above the Creator. The fact is that the Son of God has such love and respect for His Holy Mother that her prayer to Him is equal to a command. The Blessed Virgin, says St. Albert the Great, is able to entreat her Son for the salvation of her servants, and she is able to command Him with the authority of a mother. This is the favor we ask of her, he adds, when we use the words monstra te esse matrem. It is a frequent prayer of the church, a prayer that is most pleasing to her and most profitable to our souls. It is as if we said to her, Most Holy Mother of God, let us see the incomparable mercies with which thy motherly heart is filled on behalf of thy most, most unworthy children. Show us the mighty power that thy most benign heart hath upon the most merciful heart of thy beloved Son. Monstra te esse matrem, sumat per te preces qui pronobis natus tulit esse tuis. Chapter 4 The Sacred Heart of Jesus was filled with bitter sorrow at the sight of his loving mother's anguish during his passion. As the adorable heart of our Savior was on fire with infinite love for his most holy mother, the anguish which he bore in seeing her plunge into a sea of sorrow at the time of his passion was beyond the power of human word or thought. The Blessed Virgin was the mother of our Redeemer, and she ever sustained in her heart an unceasing combat of love. She knew that it was God's will that her beloved son should suffer and die to save souls. Thus, her most ardent love for that divine will and for the salvation of souls placed her in utter submission to the commands of God. Her incomparable motherly love for her dear son, however, caused her unspeakable sorrow in view of the torments that he was to suffer to redeem the world. The saints teach that when the day of his passion had come, in accordance with the loving obedience with which he always honored his Holy Mother, and the goodness he always showed in consoling his friends and their affliction, he took leave of his dear mother before the beginnings of his sufferings. To do all things out of obedience to the will of his father and his mother, since she had not a will different from the father's, he asked permission of her to carry out what his eternal father had commanded him. He told her that it was the will of the Father that she should accompany him to the foot of the cross, and that, after his death, she should wrap his body in a shroud and place it in the tomb. The saints also teach that he commanded her what to do and where to remain until his resurrection. It is also possible that he revealed to her that he had to suffer as much to prepare her as to encourage her to accompany him in his sufferings. Because their interior sorrows were unutterable, they did not declare them to each other in words. Their eyes met and their hearts understood their mutual afflictions. The most perfect love of both and their entire conformity to the divine will did not permit any imperfection in their natural feelings. On the one hand, the Savior being the only son of his beloved mother, felt very keenly her sorrows, but, on the other, being her God, and willing to fortify her in the greatest sorrow ever borne by a human being, he consoled her by his divine words, which she heard and kept carefully in her heart. He poured an abundance of new grace into her soul, so that she might endure and overcome the exceedingly terrible sorrows prepared for her. These sorrows were so great, 
that if it had been possible and fitting for her to suffer in place of her son, it would have been easier for her to do so. Her torments would thus have been much more bearable than the sight of her son's passion. It would have been infinitely preferable for her to give her life for him than to watch him suffer such dreadful tortures. Since God had willed otherwise, she offered her heart and Jesus gave his body so that each should suffer what God had ordained. Mary had to suffer all the torments of her son in her extremely sensitive heart. Jesus had to endure in his body inexplicable torments and in his heart the inconceivable sufferings of his holy mother. When he had taken leave of his mother, the Savior plunged himself into the immense ocean of his sorrows, and his desolate mother accompanied him in spirit, as she remained in constant prayer. Thus, that sad day began for her with prayers, tears, inner agonies, and a most perfect submission to the divine will, as she uttered in the depths of her heart what her son said to his father in the Garden of Olives. Father, not my will, but thine be done. The night that our Redeemer was seized in the Garden of Olives, the Jews led him, bound and manacled, first to the house of Annas, then to that of Caiaphas, where, weary of mocking and insulting him, they kept him a prisoner until the next day. St. John the Evangelist also left the house of Caiaphas, whether by an order from our Savior or by some divine inspiration, and went to the house of the Blessed Virgin to inform her of what had taken place. Who, O my God, could express the grief and sorrow of the mother of Jesus as his beloved disciple recounted what had happened since the opening events of the Passion? Surely the feelings and the griefs of them both were such that whatever one might say of them would be as naught compared with the reality. They conversed more with their hearts than with their tongues, more with their tears than with words, particularly the Blessed Virgin, whose grief was so intense that she could give no outward expression to it. Later, when the time came to accompany her son, her only son, to Calvary, she set out at daybreak in silence, even as her divine son, her lamb, took upon his cross without a word. She bathed the way with her tears, and her heart set up a thousand ardent sighs to heaven. Let the devout followers of this sorrowing virgin henceforth gladly pursue a way whereby they can accompany her in her sorrows. The Jews led the Savior to the house of Pilate and Herod, with every sort of insult and shame. But his sad mother could not see him because of the multitude and the noise of the people, until that moment when Pilate, after the scourging and the crowning of thorns, showed him to the populace. Then it was that she heard the voices of the rabble, the uproar of the city, the insults vomited forth against her son, the outrages done him, the blasphemies flung at him. Her heart underwent immeasurable suffering, and her eyes streamed with tears. Deduc quasi torrentum lacrimos. As she placed, as she had placed all her love in him, she desired his presence above all else, even though it must have afflicted her the most. For love can be so ardent that it endures much less the absence of the object loved than the pain caused by the beloved's presence, however great the pain. In all this bitterness and anguish, passing all imagination, this innocent mother aspired to the sight of her divine son. Finally, she saw him all torn from head to foot with whips. His sacred head was pierced with cruel thorns. 
his adorable face bruised, swollen, stained with blood and spittle, with a rope round his neck and his hands bound. He wore the scarlet robe of mockery. Well did he know that his sorrowful mother was there, and she too knew full well that his divine majesty read the feelings of her heart, which was pierced with sorrows not inferior to those he bore in his own body. There she heard the false testimony given against him. She heard them prefer Barabbas, a thief and a murderer. She heard thousands of voices shouting in anger, Tole, Tole, Crucifige, Crucifige. She heard the cruel and unjust sentence pronounced against the author of life. She saw upraise the cross on which they were to crucify him. She saw him bearing it on his shoulders and beginning his march to Calvary. She followed his blood-stained footsteps and watched the way with as many tears as he shed drops of blood. And she bore inwardly the burden of the cross as heavy upon her heart as upon his shoulders. At last, she reached Calvary, accompanied by the holy women who sought to console her. Like her gentle lamb, she was silent, suffering unspeakable agony, hearing the hammer blows struck by the executioners on the nails fastening her son to the cross. As she was extremely weak from her night of watching, tears, and fasting, when she saw him whom she loved more deeply than herself, raised on the cross without being able to relieve him in any way, she fell into the arms of those accompanying her, as ordinarily happens under the stress of great and excessive sorrow. Then as her tears dried, she lay there, pale, trembling mightily. No other fragrant water could be found to throw upon her face but the tears of grief of those who were supporting her, until such a time as her son restored her strength that she might accompany him unto death. Whereupon, shedding new streams of tears, she began to suffer a fresh martyrdom of sorrow at the sight of her son and her God, hanging upon the cross. Nevertheless, this did not prevent her from performing within her soul the office of mediatrix between God and sinners, cooperating with the Redeemer in saving, in saving them, and offering to the Father for them his blood, his sufferings, and his death, with the most ardent desire for their eternal happiness. On the one hand, the unspeakable love that she bore her dear child made her fear to behold him expire and die. On the other, it filled her with sorrow that his torments were dragging on so long, only to end in his death. Although she wanted the Eternal Father to soften the rigor of his torments, she also wished to conform wholly to his every command. Thus, divine love engendered in her heart a combat between conflicting desires and feelings which, from this same love, caused her to suffer unspeakable sorrows. These sacred lambs, divine and human, beheld and understood each other and communicated to each other their sorrows. It may be said with certainty that no one can understand their anguish except the two hearts of son and mother who, loving each other perfectly, together suffered these cruel torments. Their mutual love being measured, being the measure of their sorrows, those who consider their excruciating pain are all the less able to understand it the further they are from comprehending the love of such a son for such a mother, and of such a mother for such a son. The sorrows of the Blessed Virgin went on increasing. They were being renewed continually by the new insults and torments inflicted on her, on her son, by the Jews in their wrath. What sorrow when she heard him utter these words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? 
What sorrow to see gall and vinegar given him to quench his burning thirst? What sorrow when she watched him die on the gibbet between criminals? What sorrow to behold his heart pierced with a lance? What sorrow when she received him dead, taken down from the cross and placed in her arms? What sorrow when the disciples took his holy body from her embrace to enclose it in the sepulchre? With what sorrow must she have returned home, there to await his resurrection? How gladly would the Holy Virgin have suffered all the pains of her son, rather than witness his endurance? It is a result which perfect charity produces in the hearts of those who strive to imitate their divine Father and their good Mother, that they bear with joy their own afflictions and keenly feel those of others. Thus it is easier for them to endure pain themselves than to see the loved ones suffering. That is what our Savior did throughout the course of his life, and particularly on the day of his passion. Knowing that the traitor had sold him for money, he showed far deeper concern over the lost soul of Judas, saying it would have been better for him if he had never been born, rather than merit damnation, than over the torments that he had to suffer by betrayal. He also showed to the weeping women who were following him as he carried his cross on his shoulders how the tribulations which they and the city of Jerusalem would have to suffer were more painful to him than all that he, ha- that he was undergoing. Daughters of Jerusalem, he said to them, weep not over me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the day shall come wherein they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that have never borne, and the paps that have not given suck. Even while he was fastened to the cross, forgetting his own torments, he made it clear that the trials of sinners were felt more by him than his own sufferings, and that he prayed his Father to pardon them. From this we know that his love for his creatures rendered him more sensitive to their afflictions than to his own. The greatest torture that our Savior suffered on the cross, a torture more painful to him than his own bodily sufferings, was to see his most holy mother, whom he loved more than all creatures together, overwhelmed with sorrow. She was of all mothers the most perfect, the faithful companion of his journeys and of all his labors, who, being immaculate, deserved not to suffer for any fault that she had committed. Her motherly love was greater than that of all angels and saints. She saw him suffering torments that never had nor ever will have their like. How great is the agony of such a mother, who sees before her eyes such a son so unjustly tortured and agonizing in a sea of sorrows, without being able to help him. Truly, this cross was so huge and heavy that no human soul is capable of comprehending it. It was a cross which was reserved for the grace, the love, and the heroic virtues of the Mother of God. The fact that she was the innocent mother of God did not prevent her from suffering such great torture. On the contrary, her son would not permit anyone, even those who were crucifying him, to to dare to offer her insult or cause her grief. Desiring to make her like unto himself, whose love was the principal and first cause of his sufferings and death, he also willed that his love for his mother and her love for him should be the cause of the martyrdom of his heart at the end of his life, just as at the beginning it had been the source of his joys and satisfaction. 
The Son of God witnessed from his cross all the griefs and sorrows of the holy heart of his blessed mother. He heard her sighs. He saw her tears and the loneliness in which she was to remain after his death. Each vision was a new torment and a new martyrdom for the divine heart of Jesus. Thus, everything was present that could afflict and crucify the most lovable hearts of the Son and the Mother. Therefore, some authorities think that when the Savior spoke from the cross to his sorrowful mother, he did not wish to call her mother so as not to cause her more pain. He spoke only words which showed that he had not forgotten her, and that, in accordance with his Father's will, he was succoring her in her loneliness, giving her the beloved disciple to be her son, saying, Woman, behold thy son, and to the disciple, behold thy mother. Henceforth, St. John remained bound to the service of the Queen of Heaven, honoring her as his mother and serving her as his lady, esteeming the service to her as the greatest favor that he could receive in this world from his loving master. All sinners have a share in this grace of St. John, for he represented all human beings at the foot of the cross, and our Savior beheld them all in him. So in speaking to him, he was addressing all men in general, and each soul in particular, saying, Ecce mater tua, behold thy mother. I give you my mother to be yours, and I give you to her as her children. What a precious gift! What an inestimable treasure! What an incomparable grace! What an obligation we have to our Savior in his unspeakable goodness! With thanks we should render him. He has given his divine Father to be our Father, and he gives us his most holy Mother to be our Mother, so that we shall have with him but one and the same Father and Mother. We are not worthy to be the slaves of this great Queen, and lo, he makes us her children. What reverence and humility we must have for such a mother, what zeal and affection in her service, what pains we must take to imitate her holy virtues, so that there will be some resemblance between mother and children. This gentle mother received great consolation when she heard the voice of her dear son. At the hour of death, any word whatsoever from one's child or dear friend lends great comfort and peculiar consolation. Since those two sacred hearts, the hearts of such a son and of such a mother, so well understood each other, the Blessed Virgin accepted most readily St. John as her son, and in him all sinners in general, knowing well that that was the intention of her dying son. He was shedding his blood for sinners, and their sins were the cause of his death. He desired in that last hour to remove from them any possible mistrust of him, when they saw the great sufferings that they had caused him by their sins. To that end, he gave them his most valued treasure, a treasure most capable of influencing him, his most holy mother, so that by her mediation and protection, they might have the confident assurance of being received and welcomed by his divine majesty. One cannot doubt, therefore, that the inestimable love of the mother of goodness for sinners, since, in that spiritual beginning at the foot of the cross, she suffered unspeakable pain, which was absent from the virgin birth of her son and her God. All these things clearly show that the sorrows of the mother and the sufferings of the son culminate in immense graces, blessings, and favors for sinners. What an obligation we have, therefore, to honor, to love, and to praise those two most lovable hearts of Jesus and Mary. 
to employ our whole life in serving and glorifying them, and to endeavor to imprint on our hearts a perfect image of their most eminent virtues. It is impossible to please them if we follow any other path except the one they trod upon earth. Chapter 5. The Sacred Heart of Jesus is a Furnace of Love for the Church Triumphant, Militant, and Suffering. It is certainly true that this adorable heart is a burning furnace of divine love, radiating its fire and game in all directions, in heaven, on earth, and even in hell. In heaven, the Church Triumphant, on earth, in the Church Militant, and in purgatory, in the Church Suffering, and to some degree, even in the hell of the damned. If we lift our eyes and hearts to heaven, to the church triumphant, which shall we see? We shall behold an innumerable army of saints, patriarchs, prophets, apostles, martyrs, confessors, and virgins. What are all these saints? They are so many flames from the immense furnace of the divine heart of Jesus. Is it not the love of that kind heart which brought them into the world, enlightened them with the light of faith, and gave them strength to conquer the devil, the world, and the flesh? Is it not the goodness of that amiable heart which adorned them with all virtues, sanctified them in this world, and glorified them in the other, which kindled in their hearts the love they bear to God, inspired their lips with his divine praises, which is the source of all that is great and holy and admirable in them? If, then, one celebrates during the course of the year so many feasts in honor of these same saints— What a solemnity is due to this divine heart, which is the principle of everything that is glorious and noble in all the saints. Let us come down to earth and see what is most worthy and great in the church militant. It is the holy sacraments, the sacrament of baptism, by which we are made children of God, confirmation, which gives us the Holy Spirit, penance, which washes away our sins and restores us to God's favor, the Blessed Eucharist, which feeds our souls with the flesh and blood of the Son of God, making us live by his life, matrimony, which forms children for God, to serve and honor him on earth and to love and praise him forever in heaven, holy orders, which gives to the church priests who shall continue the functions of the great high priest and thus cooperate with him in the great work of the salvation of the world, so that they bear the name and the character of saviors in Holy Scripture. Ascendant Salvatores in Montem Zion, an extreme unction, which at our departure from this world fortifies us against the enemies of our salvation, which at the last hour make their final endeavor to ruin us. The seven sacraments are so many inexhaustible fountains of grace and holiness, which have their source in the immense ocean of the sacred heart of our Savior. They are so many flames of a divine furnace from which proceed all spiritual blessings. But the brightest of those flames is the Most Holy Eucharist. It is true that this great sacrament is a compendium of all the wonders of the power, wisdom, and goodness of God. But it is also true that it is one of the fruits of the incomparable heart of Jesus and one of the flames of that wondrous furnace. Since the solemn feast is celebrated by Holy Church in honor of the Blessed Sacrament, would a solemnity should also be kept in honor of His Most Sacred Heart which is the source of all that is great and rare and precious in this august sacrament. Let us, as it were, descend in spirit to purgatory, to the church suffering. What is purgatory? It is the awe-inspiring throne of divine justice, 
which meets out in this place punishment so terrible. The St. Thomas says, The slightest pain suffered there surpasses all the sufferings of this world. St. Augustine says the same thing as the angelic doctor. Nevertheless, the terrible justice of God does not hold such sway in purgatory that mercy has no part there. Mercy with justice has constituted purgatory to open paradise, which would remain closed to the majority of men if purgatory did not exist, because it is a truth of our faith that nothing contaminated shall enter heaven. Thus the soul, even though it had but one venial sin on quitting the body, would never enter paradise unless the the merciful Savior had established purgatory to purify it. And so purgatory is a result of the goodness and charity of the most benign heart of our Redeemer. Let us descend still lower. Let us go in spirit into hell, since St. Chrysostom declares that not one of those who thus go there during this life to inspire themselves to the work of their salvation with fear and trembling shall descend there after death. What is hell? It is a place of torment, according to the gospel, locus tormentorum. It is Gehenna ignis, supplicum aeternum, the pain of fire and eternal punishment. In short, it is the place of the vengeance and anger of God, but the infinite mercy of the sacred heart of Jesus is manifested there in three ways. First, his goodness provides that the damned are not punished as much as they deserve. For sin deserves infinite punishment, seeing that it is an offense committed against a God who infinitely deserves to be served and obeyed, and against a God to whom we have infinite obligations. Sin deserves infinite punishment not only as to extent and duration, but also intensively as to the degree and quality of the punishment. Now, although the pains of the reprobate are infinite as to extent and duration, they are limited as to intensiveness and degree seeing that our Lord can increase them ever more and more. This he does not do because of the infinite goodness of his most tender heart. Secondly, his justice has established a hell to punish the wicked who die in their sins, but his mercy too has fashioned it, says St. Chrysostom, to inspire the fear of God in the hearts of the good and to lead them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Thirdly, The unparalleled goodness of our Savior employs the fires of hell to enkindle in our hearts the fire of divine love. In what way? In this manner. If you had deserved punishment by fire, what an obligation you would have to love the person who delivered you from such a heavy penalty. How few persons there are on earth who have never committed a mortal sin. There are very few indeed. And what was the just desert of all those who offended God mortally, even but one in their whole life, they have merited hell. But on them alone does it depend to be freed therefrom. To whom do they owe this obligation? To the immense charity of the most kind heart of our Redeemer, which gives them infinite obligations to serve and to love him. Acknowledge that the loving kindnesses of the amiable heart of this divine Savior are exceedingly admirable, that he uses even the fires of hell to draw us to love him, and hence to belong to the number of those who shall possess him eternally. And so this divine furnace, the adorable heart of Jesus, diffuses everywhere its fiery flames, in heaven, on earth, and even in hell. O ineffable goodness, O wondrous love, O God of my heart, 
Would that I possessed all the hearts that have ever been, are, and shall be in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, to employ them in loving, praising, and glorifying Thee unceasingly. O Jesus, only Son of God, only Son of Mary, I offer Thee the most loving heart of Thy Divine Mother, which is more precious and pleasing to Thee than all hearts. O Mary, Mother of Jesus, I offer Thee the most adorable heart of Thy well-beloved Son, who is the life and love and joy of Thy heart. Chapter 6. The Sacred Heart of Jesus is a furnace of love for each one of us. To appreciate this truth, let us consider the wondrous effects of the inconceivable goodness and the unspeakable love of the Sacred Heart toward us. Two of these effects, which embody many more, are given here. The first is that of having delivered us from the abyss of evils into which sin has plunged us. By sin we were made enemies of God, the object of his wrath and curse, excommunicated from the Most Holy Trinity, anathematized by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, separated from the company of angels, banished from the home of our Heavenly Father. By sin we were driven from paradise, cast into hell, plunged into the devouring flames of eternal fire, subjected to the terrible tyranny of Satan, enslaved by demons, given over to their rage and fury, condemned to the, to the rightful punishments of hell, and without hope of succor or relief. Exceedingly terrible are those evils. There is yet one which exceeds them all. What is that but sin, which is the evil of evil and the sole cause of all the others on earth and in hell? What an evil is sin? To understand something of its malice, imagine all men who have lived, are now living and will live upon earth. Imagine that each of them possesses the holiness of a St. John the Baptist. Imagine also all the angels of heaven as taking mortal flesh and being joined to the multitude of men. Even if all these men and angels were to shed their blood to the last drop and suffer all the torments of hell for eternity, they would not be able to deliver us from the tiniest venial sin. They would not be able to render perfect and worthy satisfaction to God for the offense done him, nor consequently to free us from the slightest evil we should have merited by that sin, nor give us that drop of water which the rich man craved so long ago. If one venial sin is so great an evil, what of mortal sin? What is it to be the slave of that infernal monster which is more hideous and terrible than all the monsters and dragons of earth and hell? Such is the pit of evils into which we have been plunged, from which there was no hope of escape, since all human powers and all the forces of heaven and earth were powerless to deliver us. Yet it has transpired by a boon which we cannot comprehend that we were liberated. To whom do we owe this? To the most loving heart of our adorable Redeemer. We were delivered from so many evils by the immeasurable goodness, the infinite mercy, and the matchless love of that divine heart. What had we done? What service rendered to constrain him thereto? Nothing whatever. It was out of purest love that he honored us with such a favor. What did he do to obtain for us so great a blessing? He did and suffered all. The cost to him was dear, his blood, his life, a thousand torments, and a most cruel and shameful death. What obligations we have to honor, praise, and love that most benign heart in return for all these benefits. Suppose a man is a bandit gunman. He has robbed a wealthy merchant by violence. He is caught, imprisoned, tried, condemned to death, 
and there he is in the hands of the hangman, who is putting the rope around his neck. The merchant arrives at that very moment. By dint of money, the entreaties of friends, and even by the offer of his own life for the culprit, he obtains a pardon for the criminal and sets him free. How great is the bandit's debt to his rescued? For our crimes, we were condemned to the pains of hell. The only begotten Son of God, out of the inconceivable abundant goodness of his divine heart, suffered a most atrocious and shameful death in order to deliver us. Try to estimate how indebted we are to that adorable heart. An elephant will give its enti itself entirely for the rest of its life to serve a man who had released it from a pit. Which shall I give in return to thee, my Savior, and what shall I do for thy love of me? Thou hast snatched me out of the frightful jaws of hell as often as ever I have fallen into them by sinning, or would have fallen if the charity of thy dear heart had not held me back. Does it take a dumb animal to teach me the lesson of gratitude which I owe thee for thy unspeakable mercies? Such is the first effect, or rather the effect without number or measure, of the tremendous love which the Sacred Heart of our Redeemer has manifested in delivering us from immeasurable evils. But it is not enough for him to have freed us from all those punishments. He would likewise shower us with inconceivable gifts. What a favor and fortune it is, not only to be snatched from hell, but to be raised to heaven, to be made a citizen of paradise, where there is a general exemption from all sorts of evils, and where one possesses fully, entirely, unchangeably, eternally, all sorts of boons. What a favor and a fortune to be associated with the angels, to be their companion, to be seated beside their throne, to live the angelic life, to be clothed with their glory, to enjoy their felicity, in short, to resemble the angels. Arunt aquiales angelus dei. What an extraordinary fortune to be ranked with the children of God, the heirs of the great God, the co-heirs of the Son of God. What a remarkable privilege to be kings of an everlasting kingdom and to possess the same kingdom that the Father of Jesus has given to his Son. What a blessed invitation to eat at the table of the King of Heaven. What a great joy to be clothed in the glorious ro royal robe of the King of Kings. What a supreme favor to share the throne of the sovereign monarch of the universe. What an incomparable blessing to dwell quietly with our Savior in the bosom and in the adorable heart of his divine Father. Pater quos didisti mihi. Volu ut ubi sum ego et ili sint mecum. Father, I will that where I am, they also whom thou hast given me may be with me. Where art thou, my Savior? In the bosom of the Father, says St. John. What a fortune, moreover, to share all the good things that God possessed. He who has God shall enjoy all the manifold glory, happiness, and wealth of God. Amen. Dico vobis super omnia bona sua constitutuet eum. What a blessing to be wholly transformed into God, to be clothed, filled, penetrated with all the perfections of God, more perfectly than the iron in the midst of the furnaces, penetrated by the qualities of the fire. Finally, what a blessing to be united to God. What a privilege to be by grace and by participation what God is by nature and by essence. What created mind can understand these surpassing gifts? Can all the tongues of men and angels express at least part of them? Is it not true what St. Paul says, that all those blessings are so great that I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man, what things God hath prepared for them that love him?
Now, to whom do we owe all those blessings? To the boundless generosity and infinite love of the most kind heart of our lovable Savior. Hence, what honor, what praise, what thanksgiving we must render him, and with what devotion we must celebrate the solemnity of that most august heart. Suppose that the aforesaid merchant who was robbed not only delivered the gunman from the hands of the executioner and from the shameful death he was ready to suffer, but also gave him half of his goods. How would that criminal ever be able to repay such goodness? Our divine Savior has done more for us. Not only has he delivered us from eternal death and all the tortures accompanying it, but he has also heaped upon us a superabundance of unspeakable blessings. Indeed, he has given us all his blessings without reserve. What shall we give him in return? If we had the hearts as of many seraphim, as there are stars in the sky, atoms in the air, blades of grass on the earth, grains of sand and drops of water in the sea, and if we devoted them solely to love and glorify him, it would be as nothing compared with the love he has for us and the obligations we have of consecrating our hearts to him. Yet what are we and the great majority of men doing? Is it not true that we treat this adorable Redeemer as ungratefully as if we had never received any boon from him? Is it not true that we treat him as if he had done us all the evil in the world? But is it not true that he has neglected nothing, that if it came even to all his glory and his own safety, he would not have been able to do more than he, than he has done for love of us? If it were possible, he says to St. Bridget, that I should suffer all the torments of my passion as many times as there are souls in hell, I would most gladly suffer them, for charity is as much a flame in my heart now as it was then. Even so, is it not still true that the majority of men on earth treat that loving Savior as if he were their enemy? What insults, what crimes, what cruelty and abuse could they practice against him that they do not already practice? In short, what more despicable thing could they do than to crucify him every day. Yes, crucify him. For anyone who mortally offends him, crucifies him. Rerus Christum Crucifigentes. And commits a greater crime than did the Jews, for they did not know him. Let us detest and recoil from such ingratitude and such abominable wickedness. Let us open our ears to the voice, or rather the voices of our Savior. I say voices, for all the evils from which he has delivered us and all the blessings without number he has given us are so many voices crying out to us. Seek Deus dilexit nos. God so loved us. Therefore, let us love him who so loves us. If a man of no account, the weakest and lowest of all men, should manifest some kindness toward us, we cannot help loving him. Nay, if even a dumb animal... A mongrel, for instance, attaches itself to us and does us some slight service. We love it. Why then should we not love God who is our creator, our preserver, our ruler, our king, our most faithful friend, our most loving father, our treasure, our glory, our supreme good, our life, our heart, our all? He is all heart and soul and love for us. O my Savior, I know not if I have yet begun to love thee as I ought. I now mean to love thee with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my strength. I renounce forever all that is contrary to thy holy love. 
Let me die a thousand deaths rather than ever offend thee. I give thee my heart. Take full and absolute possession of it. Destroy in it everything not pleasing to thee, and rather destroy it itself than to allow it not to love thee. Alt amare Jesum meum. Ad mori. But am I giving thee anything and giving thee my empty heart? O my Lord, if I had the hearts of as many seraphim as thy omnipotence could create, with what joy would I consecrate them all to thee? I offer thee the precious heart of thy most worthy mother, who has more love for thee than all hearts that have been, are, or shall be. O mother of Jesus, love thy adorable son for me. O good Jesus, love thy sweet mother for me. O all ye citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem, love Jesus and Mary for me, and unite me with your great love now and eternally.